You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you are listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. The gang's all here. All right. In this episode, Oliver goes inside the huddle with mezzo-soprano Rayanne Bryce Davis, whose electrifying sense of fearlessness shines, whether she's on stage or being recorded by a cheap USB mic on Oliver's vacation in Santa Fe. And then (laughs) it's the third period of the Mozart, Mozart, Mozart clash. Which single act of a Mozart opera will triumph as the G-O-A-T goat plus in the two-minute drill? Antonio Papano loves opera and football. Maybe it's time for a new host here on the OBS. Watch your back, Weston. (laughs) Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Spotify, click follow. It's that little green heart on Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or even just email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin, just for sharing your own hot take. Great to have everybody here. Oliver, of course, going to check in a little bit later on in the show, but there is Matt Cummings. I, hello. You, the audience can't hear how swarthy I became during my trip <laughs> to the American West, where the humidity does not scare me out of it the sun. It is swarthy. <laughs> Weston Williams. I see you are as swarthy as ever. I'm pale and clammy in my little recording closet. I have not uh, uh, removed myself from this room since the last time we recorded. I wish I could unhear that. Ashley Hardgrave, there you are. (laughs) Hi, friends. I'm glad to be back. Uh, And I have a very interesting piece of information for our hometown audience that just broke right before we started recording. Apparently, the Chicago Police Department is using opera to bore restless teens. Uh, So there's a summer phenomenon that happens here that's uh, sort of affectionately called the teen takeover, when a lot of teens will sort of congregate in an area. Unfortunately, sometimes folks can get a little restless. Things can get a little bit of an uprising feel. Sometimes they're a little violent. There was a big melee down at the 7-Eleven on Roosevelt uh, yesterday. So now the Chicago Police Department and I guess the folks at 7-Eleven are blasting opera out of the speakers at the 7-Eleven to try to curb curb any more of that that action. I think it, you know, provides for a classy 7-Eleven experience, but you know, who am I? <laughs> Maybe Hillary Swank will show up to teach these kids that opera is just rap. One can hope. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. <laughs> Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Oliver will be joining us for the third period of the Mozart Cubed TKO. He's currently in Santa Fe right now, taking in the first week at the festival where audiences can catch all five of this season's productions. From Santa Fe, he sends us this interview with one of the stars of Ruzalka, with a cast that features two friends of the show, Eileen Perez and Lydia Yankovskaya, and a new friend of the show, mezzo-soprano Rayanne Bryce Davis, who sings Yeji Baba. Bryce Davis arrived in New Mexico fresh from a run of Rosalka at Dutch National Opera. Praised by the Opera Wire website is, quote, maybe the most charismatic voice of the night. Sie schwacht, 
My guest today is Rayanne Bryce Davis, and you just heard a little bit of her singing Yejibaba from the Dutch National Opera production. She's currently starring as Yejibaba in Santa Fe Opera's production, conducted by friend of the show Lydia Ankovskaya, with friend of the show Eileen Perez. It's an amazing cast. Welcome to Opera Box Go, Rayanne. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. So in preparing for this interview, um, I've just been listening to all of your content and watching all of your videos. And I don't know if you've sung Azucena or Lady Macbeth um, on stage at like the complete role, but you know, you definitely have flirted with the arias. I do know of your Baba the Turk and your Eboli and now your Yeji Baba. And something that seems these roles seem to have in common is, well, obviously to sing these roles, you need a dramatic sounding voice, but these are also roles that really you know, you can tear the scenery apart. And you have that thing where you just seem very menacing is one of the words, but also just very commanding and comfortable in your body and in using your body to give a complete performance. Would you say that is a good characterization of how you like to work? I mean, I'm probably not the biggest wallflower. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I have a friend that kind of describes me as a chameleon because I always kind of morph into whatever the character is that I'm playing. And so if you make me just the sweetest ingenue, then I can be the sweetest one there is. <laughs> but, you know, there are a lot of ingenues in the world. And so I, I definitely end up <laughs> doing more of these powerhouses. Um like you mentioned, these women full of complexities and not just the, you know, happiness sometimes filled with trauma driven by revenge, needing to take over the world, <laughs> you know, whatever their conflicts may be. What was your, it's, I mean, this production of um, Rosalka at Santa Fe uh, is very stylized and uh, almost, uh, you know, a storybook, like comic book or like fable, you know? And I just trying to figure out what your inspiration was for the way you play Yejibaba because, you know, sometimes we're used to seeing her as like this witch that has like, you know, hunched over and like, you know, lives in a hut like type of, but yours is a queen. Yours is like Miranda from <laughs> Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> I'm so happy you say that because that was very intentional. I don't like playing caricatures and I don't like making women caricatures. So uh, when we talked about it on the first day with the director, David Poutney, he said, She's a disciplinarian, um, but she's a witch. 
you know, she's a witch. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I was like, she, mine is not going to be a witch. She will mm. be a sorceress, darling. You know? And so <laughs> so I gave him what he wanted, but I gave her power and I gave her elegance and I gave her some of me, which, you know, I wanna I wanna do with all my ladies, give them the benefit of the doubt and some humanity. But the costume design came before the instruction came, right? Like the costume design. So I might think your version or the version you guys arrived at fits the costume so well, you know? Absolutely. And you wear it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. When 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 we were in the fittings, actually, one of the beauties of costume design is it can be a bit collaborative. So when we were in the fitting room, we talked about the sleeves because you could make them huge and be kind of larger than life, like, <laughs> or you could make them like smaller and more give her a bit power and more um, direction to the neckline, you know? And so we talked about those things as a character, which I don't think I'd ever been able to do in a costume <laughs> fitting before. And so I loved that to be able to have an influence on how the costume ends up looking. And it and they did an incredible job. I think it's one of the strongest costumes I've ever I've ever worn and certainly it does its, it's duty in adding to the It's amazing. Uh, a corset snatched. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that just as a complete personal question, but I, I have friends who are uh, corset wearers and they bring their own corset to every production because it's made for them, you know? Is that your corset or do they make that one for you here? Oh my gosh, absolutely not. <laughs> okay. You know, but actually the corset saved me in Santa Fe because it, for folks who have not been to Santa Fe, like it is dry and mm -hmm. there, the air is like very thin. And so every rehearsal before the corset, I was like, <laughs> like struggling to like get my breath under me and my support under me. And the first day they put me in that corset, all of a sudden, all I could do is push against that corset. And that engaged the rib cage, and I was like, "Aha! I can sing again." Thank you, Corset. <laughs> well, you're so we're in the middle of the production right now as we talk. But you mentioned that you are doing a side project in New York, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, how do you feel going back? Is this the first time leaving Santa Fe? Are you you have to come back and readjust? Like, are you prepared for that? <laughs> 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 I when I made when I planned this trip of leaving it was I didn't realize that when I came back it was going to be industry week when all the big mm. folks are going to be there but it'll be fine like I've sung Yeji Baba now in good times and bad and and she's always herself so I'm I'm not so worried they might catch a few extra breaths but she'll yeah. be okay. <laughs> Well, since we are talking about the Santa Fe Opera production, uh, anything you'd like to say about either Lydia or Eileen or other members of your cast? I mean, I think it's such a strong cast. And I'd never heard this tenor before, but I was like, oh, wow, they got a tenor for this, didn't they? <laughs> they spent some money on this guy. They sure did. They sure <laughs> did. And, and every role in the cast and on the creative team, like, really just brought it in a really authentic and elegant way. And not only that, there's some of the most generous people that I've ever encountered. We uh, share a fitting room as ladies, as the leading ladies, which is very rare. And so on the first day I walked in and I was like, oh, where's my dressing room? And they're like, it's right there. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> and then, you know, Eileen came in and she just added so much freshness and fun and 
just generosity. She comes with gifts. Everybody feeds the whole cast. It's just such a beautiful experience. I had a rough rehearsal just trying to, you know, get used to the costume while they were still changing things. And Mary Elizabeth was like my stage mama for the day. She's the foreign princess. So it's just, we're, we're like a little family and I love us. And yet they are some of the greatest artists that there are. And I, and I love Mary Elizabeth Williams as the foreign princess. She is 10 feet tall on that stage. (laughs) It's incredible. She also has, I think, an amazing, amazing costume. And I don't know how tall is she in real life? I feel like she's a giant. Is she what, 5'10 or like? I I think she's probably six. I I, I don't know. I've never asked her, but she's, she's an elegant figure. She cuts a real... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she cuts a real figure on that. And they stage. have her coming in on a horse. So it's like she's extra tall when she enters the stage. So. She is not yeah. messing around. And she breathes power into every one of those inches. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a really wonderful production. And I'm so glad to have been able to hear you in it. Uh, because other ways that I've uh, encountered your artistry has been mostly on uh, either the radio or in your videos. And um, I do want to touch on this topic of um, sort of your video project. You did one for LA Opera called Brown Sounds, which is a little bit more on the invoking some of your pop skills, your jazz skills. And then you sing the um, aria for, what's her name, in Roberto Devereaux. Um, What's that character? Yeah. Um, And you give it more of a political contemporary context um you call it to the afflicted right um so i guess i maybe it's safe for us to talk about your um initiatives or like your activity as as somebody working for social justice and opera do would you feel comfortable talking about that topic of course i mean i i think um the music that I create is part of me and part of the things that I believe in. And part of this, um, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic when I made both of those videos. And it was a time that we couldn't make opera the way we were normally creating opera. And so I was like, let's do something different. Let's do something modern. That's possible, you know, with all of these, um, restrictions that we had and so I um found folks on Craigslist on uh you know on Airbnb is how we got our space for To the Afflicted and and with like a tiny budget we created the music video and then what I realized about it was that all of a sudden my friends who weren't opera fans they could engage with the content because it was a way that they were used to. So it was still an opera aria by Donizetti from Devereaux, but they were consuming quality art in a way that was meaningful them. So it was relevant. We were all out on the streets marching during the days. And so when we came home in the evening, yes, it's opera, but it's also something that's part of our lives and something that we were really passionate about. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm really excited to bring to the art form, not sacrificing on quality, but really just bringing the relevance and bringing the art to people where they are. So when we came out of the pandemic, um, do you feel like arts organizations, opera companies were uh, considering you 
differently. It's like, oh, she's a little bit political or she's a little bit like, you know. And is that good for you or is that did you notice any kind of difference in the way you were being, uh, you know, uh, managed in those situations? Well, I have no idea because one doesn't know <laughs> what the alternative would be, <laughs> you know, necessarily. I was also, you know, one of the founding, um, one of the founders of Black Opera Alliance, and I was involved with lots of those conversations. But I try to just, I can only be responsible for the things that I'm responsible for, which is showing up prepared and singing well and bringing artistry to the table. Um Aside from that, I think the music videos actually did quite a bit because there were a lot of people who didn't know who I was. I've been singing in Europe for several years. That's kind of where I had my professional grounding. And a lot of people were introduced to me by those music videos from the comfort of their couches. <laughs> um, and so, so in the end, I think they were beneficial because houses that had never considered hiring me before they were like eh, who is that she's somebody who sings in belgium and what you know <laughs> you know all of a sudden they were like oh oh man bryce david oh who's that <laughs> so i'm like all right i'm happy to well, come home <laughs> i mean i've we've been following you know what the black opera alliance has been doing and, and uh trying to create in our space uh how do you feel the U.S. is doing, or maybe since you're working a lot in Europe, how do you feel these companies are doing it? You don't have to name names, but, you know, can you say that, okay, I see these things are starting to happen, or this is still happening and it's disappointing, or, you know, it's all um, lip service, like any kind of report card you want to give to the progress or lack of it? Of course. I mean, there's there's no question that we're seeing much more diverse stages than we were two, three years ago. You know, um, a lot of companies are definitely making a really big effort to be more inclusive in their casting. Um, and that's exciting. We're seeing a lot more programs to develop new talent, new administrators where we really need to see a change, more, you know, creatives, um, you know, conductors, uh, directors, um, and all of those things, we have to create systems so that people can be trained and are ready to step in for those positions. So I'm loving so many of the things that we're seeing. The, the, the challenge will be for the energy to continue. Will we still see stages like this in two years, in five years, in 10 years, or will we go back to, you know, things as they were? If we look at the history of companies like the Met, there have been times where there were a lot of Black singers on the stage. And then, you know, there's an admin change and then we don't see them anymore. And it's not that singers exist or don't singers or, or exist or don't exist. It's just these fads you know yeah. and we need to make that not a fad we need to make the change systemic well speaking of the met uh you are returning to the met to do the life and times of malcolm x in the coming season but before that you are uh can be in part of a world premiere at uh o festival opera philadelphia uh any gentle previewing going to give us of either of those projects for you Oh, man. Uh, 10 Days in a Madhouse that's going to be at Opera Philadelphia. 
Renee Ort is just such a genius. Um, I'm so excited about her work. We did a workshop in January and I got to hear a lot of the things that she's doing. And and she writes so, <laughs> you know, there are very few composers that you listen to them and you're like, oh, I know who that is, you know, without having to wait till till it's over. And they say, and that was, well, 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 you know. <laughs> Like you know, <laughs> that's my job, by the way, at my radio station. <laughs> no, they, they want to wait for you with Renee. She's doing this really exciting, like writes beautifully for an orchestra, but then every once in a while, there's these like electronics that just kick in, and you feel like you're at a rave. Like who else is doing that? You know, and it's so much fun. Um, and she really is is painting the pictures so clearly. And, and I'm just really excited for folks to to experience that. The cast is fierce. Kira uh, Dunn. Oh, shoot. Duffy. Kira Duffy. Yeah. Duffy thank you. Kira Duffy. <laughs> yeah. Will Leverman. Uh, We've heard of him. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's just going to be a grand old time of great music and great singing. And then you'll be singing uh, Life and Times of Malcolm X. And you were saying just a minute ago how we need to make some of these changes systemic. And I, I do feel like, you know, the Met uh, had a, a interesting year uh, doing some contemporary operas and uh, doing operas that told different stories. And those were the shows that sold better than the you know, the fourth cast of Traviata. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would, would, who would have thought that if people yeah. get about something, they go. <laughs> yeah. Well, finally, we did hint at this at the top of the show. Um, the reason why you are not in Santa Fe and why we're doing this over Zoom is because you're doing a little side project in between performances. Um, something we can look forward to when? Absolutely. I'm very excited. I'm doing my very first debut album. And <laughs> and I was able to commission some of my favorite composers who are writing music for like specifically for my voice, which is exciting. And um, I'm making music with some of my favorite collaborators, uh, pianist Jean-Minette Cellier, uh, cellist uh, Tapelo Masita, South African, uh, Ruben Kebede, violinist, and uh, Christian McGee, a wonderful percussionist. So we're just, we're in, in the Ivalas uh, string quartet. So we're just doing the thing. Like we're all trained like Juilliard Manhattan School of Music uh, musicians. But we're bringing like heart and soul and vibe and relevance and power and beauty. And we're bringing all of that to the studio. <laughs> we're, we're doing it. We're going to do music videos. We're going to do a tour. We're going to do an installation. Like we're doing the modern rollout with just classical powerhouse training. <laughs> awesome. Um, what Do you have a label yet? No, somebody fancy wants to. <laughs> no, I'm, honestly, I kind of want to just own my stuff. I want to okay. own my stuff, and uh, those are those things are still in in conversation right now. I'm just focusing on making the best freaking music that we can make. Awesome. Well, I can't I can't wait to get my hand my my dirty little hands on it and to play it on my at my other job. So, <laughs> uh, Rayan Bryce Davis, um, you are doing amazing work and it's such a pleasure to watch your career flourish and uh, thank you for taking the time today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. That's from the 2016 Belvedere International Singing Competition. Our guest, Rayanne Bryce Davis, singing Verdi's Odun Fatale. Our thanks to Grant Carr and the PR team at Santa Fe Opera for coordinating the interview. TKO on the OBS. I am in the middle of the five operas of Santa Fe Opera's 23 season, and I came to the podcast just to bring my uh, my colleagues to their knees in this TKO <laughs> fight to the You'll death. Be lucky. <laughs> oh, the trash talk has started. Just as a reminder, um, listen back to the last two episodes to hear uh, segments one and two of this epic battle between Mozart acts of operas. We've uh, decided that Act 2 of Marriage of Figaro, Act 1 of Così Fan Tutte, and Act 1 of Don Giovanni are the three greatest acts of Mozart operas. And now we will figure out which is the greatest of those three. And we're going to use these parameters. Uh, We'll do this in five rounds. The first round is uh, which one has the best aria? They all have great arias, but what is the best aria? Then in the next round, we will talk about verisimilitude. What is the one that is the most believable that has the story that you could actually follow and say, yeah, that, that actually could happen. Sorry, round Ashley. Three, <laughs> round three Sorry. will Spoilers. be what has the best ensemble. Then act uh, round four, we will talk about um, things that George loves to talk about, which actually we all care about uh, when we think of opera as a theatrical form. Do the transitions work? And does the form work to help tell the story? It's and all about finally, transitions, baby. <laughs> and finally, we will talk about just that special thing, that intangible thing. Maybe it's a musical moment. Maybe it's a phrase. Maybe it's just something that doesn't fit neatly into a category. What gives this act the edge? Uh, and like in real world, our judges are two cisgendered heterosexual white men. <laughs> yeah, it really there is. We, go. we are part of the problem. <laughs> they are kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with uh, round one. And we have some musical examples for round one. Uh, I will say that uh, Don Giovanni uh, has great arias in the first act, but if I had to bring it, if I had to narrow it down, it would either be Donna Anna's. Orsai Kilonore, her vengeance aria, or Leporello's catalog aria. Mm. And then when you think, how do you take this? Can you take the aria out of the opera? And can, does it still mean something? Can you still perform it and get everything that the aria has to offer out of context? And I feel that sort of eliminates Orsai Kilonore, making, for me, the catalog aria 
the best aria in this opera. Uh, it is an aria that works out of context. It is an archetype of its genre. It's a list aria and many list arias for baritones and basses and bass baritones follow, uh, especially in comic opera and even in opera comique. Uh, a great example of a list aria would be, um, the, uh, mob, the ballad of mob from, um, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Largo Factotum from Barbara Seville. But here is the granddaddy of all the list arias. I'll also say that orchestrally, uh, it makes use of the orchestra, giving beautiful lyrical passages to the orchestra while Leporello is singing a list. And then in the second half of the aria, it switches. Uh, Leporello gets beautiful cantabile moments. So it really does put the bass baritone through its paces. Hmm. Um, I'm going to drop in a clip right now of uh, one of the great Leporellos of any generation, Ferruccio Furlanetto. Madalina. Il catalogo è questo, delle belle che amò il padron mio, un catalogo le che ho fatto io, osservate, leggete con me, osservate, leggete con me. In Italia si sente quaranta, in la magna di cento tempura. Somehow I am going to pass by the masterpiece that is Venite in Ginocchiatevi here. I hope you can all forgive me. Um, but I, it just doesn't get it better with Mozart character introductions than Porgia Amor. You meet the Countess before you even hear her voice. You know exactly who she is because of that gorgeous, lush string introduction. And in the first act, you've met the other three of these quartet of lead characters, Susanna the Pragmatist, Figaro the Prankster, uh, and the Count, who is really just a lech uh, and, a, and an <laughs> abuser. But And here is where we are really meeting the beating heart and soul of the opera, the romantic the Countess. And when it's sung well, time just absolutely stops. It is so achingly beautiful and deceptively difficult the, that that lyric soprano sounds like she is floating on top of an orchestra, but she is sweating bullets and absolute <laughs> and grounded in her support. One uh, of the hardest entrances in all of opera. Yeah, I I am gonna bring back our good friend Kiritakanoa here because few can spin a line as golden as she. This is from that 1973 production of Marriage of a Girl from Glyndebourne.
I agree, uh, Matt, about the Soprano sweating bullets. And this is a real test for um, Contessas. Can you be calm and can you sing this opening phrase and show that you're a Mozartian, show that you are regal, show that you are in pain? All of these things you have to give the audience in that opening phrase and that majestic opening uh, or uh, orchestral prelude and it's almost rude how little glory you get for how hard it is uh, unlike yeah. some arias which I, are just showing off at this point anyway yeah. ashley what do you have <laughs> speaking of showing off let's get to the granddaddy of them all come scolio uh she's unmoved but these vocal lines ain't uh so Basically, this is Fiordaligi's aria. This is her rock aria. This is where she is being tested, quote unquote, for her faithfulness and her fidelity, which is gross, but whatever. Uh, so this is one of Mozart's most difficult arias. It's over two octaves. There are these huge octave and seventh leaps. There's insane runs through every single passage of the female voice uh, or the soprano voice, rather. It, it really is specifically for the most agile of voices. The thing that's wild about this for me dramatically is that like, her emotions are absolutely sincere. Fiordaligi dramatically really believes in in demonstrating her loyalty here. But the music doesn't lose touch with just how buffa the nature of this entire scenario is. The style here where, that she's singing in is just, it's deliberately exaggerated. It's it's almost a parody of mm. an aria. Uh, so that's what I love about it is that it's these vocal fireworks and crazy acrobatics. But you know, at the heart of it, Fiordaligi really does believe she's sincere in in what emotions she's stating here fun little nugget on this piece in particular mozart allegedly hated uh the singer for whom this role was created adriana ferreza del bene uh <laughs> she had these tics uh when she sang she would throw her head back or she would drop her jaw very dramatically depending on where she needed to be in her range so when mozart was writing this for this woman he didn't really care for he chose to fill her showpiece with uh with leaps to exploit these tics that she had and it's said that he took pleasure Amazing. in watching her bob her head like a chicken uh and so with with that, we're going to listen to Kiri Takanawa not bob her head like a chicken. This is Alan <laughs> Lombard conducting her and the Strasbourg Phil in 2010. Give Porgiamor a little bit of extra point value, I think, in difficulty. It is the entrance for the Contessa, whereas Fiordaligi, by this point of the opera, has had a good 
40 minutes uh, of warm-up uh, to get those you low notes. You need the warm-up, though. <laughs> it's not like her entrance music is actually that much easier than this. Let's just say that. It, and, and to me, it really seems like the winner of this round is Kiri Takanawa. So. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> or fair. any soprano that can sing Kome Skolio well, quite frankly. Possibly. Well, it was a great, it was a great lineup and uh, a great uh, chicken nugget of trivia there, Ashley. Thank you. Listen, here's here's my winner. Like a rock, I was strong as I could be. It's it's got to be Cozy and Komeskolia. This this act is full of just drop dead arias. I admit, starting act two, Pojimor, that is a tough place to be. Nobody wants to start singing at the top of act two in any show ever. But for me, I think Cozy is going to take this round. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Round two, verisimilitude. We're talking about uh, does the audience believe what they are seeing? And does the opera, does the text, does the music serve the drama and let you be in it? Can you be well, in uh, the show? You know? And Ashley, this has been lovely. So um, thanks. <laughs> listen, listen. Got a good run. Should, can I just get mine in and be done with it so you yeah. guys can okay, get on with it? Okay. Ahead, Look. Look, I know, okay, when it comes to cozy and verisimilitude, I, I know, we all know, short of a QAnon Reddit forum, it is unlikely that you're going to find a, pay- a fake pair of foreigners who are poisoning themselves and are revived by magnets. But again, that is not why cozy is here. So I welcome you to suspend your belief. But if you really need to believe in the plots of operas, then I guess let's hear from Oliver and Matt. Go ahead. <laughs> JFK so- Jr. Cozy when? <laughs> I... I would say that if we were talking about verisimilitude in the 18th century, Figaro would have the upper hand. But coming from the 21st century perspective, and we do know about, you know, rape, we do know about murder, we know about uh, power and class structure and the uber rich, you know, making all the decisions and getting away with murder. We know about gaslighting now. And this act has all of those things. We even have, you know, like this uh, almost sexual assault on stage of Zerlina and probably complete rape of Donna Anna at the very beginning of the opera. And once again, the murder of her father and having her father's body dragged off the stage. Um, and it seems like now in 2023 that uh, those things happen, you know? So uh, maybe not in the 18th century, but in the 21st century, yes, I'm in it. All right, Matt, what's your what's your case? You are lucky that we're only talking about Act 1 of Don Giovanni for the various military. <laughs> well, I'll mention that really all four of my acts could win on that metric. <laughs> and furthermore, many of those same themes are similarly addressed in Marriage of Figaro, albeit not quite as graphically. Uh, because there's nothing supernatural here, and we don't need, we similarly do not need to be convinced that powerful men abuse their positions, such as an employer who feels the right to, uh, have the right of first refusal, the droit de seigneur, uh, with Susanna before she gets married to someone else. And arguably the most unbelievable part of this opera is just the sheer number of coincidences that you need for the tightrope walk to be successful. But honestly, if that is your heel to die on here, I have news for you about the concept of the theatrical arts. (laughs) 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 And to really drive my point home, I want to say that even more than the other two operas, these characters feel so lived in and well-rounded. And the motivations and choices really do still make sense in today's world. And the influence of those highly formalized types is a lot less pronounced in Figaro than it is in either Don Giovanni or Cozy. 
Yeah, I think I'm going to have to go with Matt on this one just because, you know, uh, of these operas and even these opera specific acts, I, I feel like this is the only uh, I, I feel like Figaro is the only one where I'm going to sit down and have a full like theater experience. And it doesn't feel as heightened, you know, uh, especially when you're, even when you're talking about like Porgia Moore and stuff like this, like it's so real. It's so like, uh, like lived in, it feels like psychological 21st century opera writing, honestly. Sorry, <laughs> Oliver. The Marriage of Figaro is timeless because it's about class. Mozart got it right. He figured out the differences in class and he figured out how to dramatize those. Figaro is the winner. We're now in round three, uh, the best ensemble. And I would say that probably the most famous ensemble in all of Mozart operas is the seduction of Zerlina La Cirerem La Mano. Is it musically the most interesting thing that Mozart's ever written? Not really. Uh, I know that we've got a heavy hitter coming up when we get to Cozy. So I submit uh, a equally beautiful, sublime moment in this opera that is full of action, uh, a moment that just sort of stops and allows you to breathe and to take in the genius of Mozart, uh, which is the Mask Trio, uh, which uh, is the last moment of Serenity before Act One draws to a very exciting conclusion. We will hear a performance of this astonishing musical moment uh, from the Jordingholm Court Theater, one of the early period performances of this, uh, Arnold Oesterman leading Arlene Auger, Della Jones, and Nico van der Miel. So here's where I may have weakened my argument a little bit in that I did tip my hand and already played my favorite musical moment of the acting <laughs> finale of Marriage of Figaro two weeks ago. So in the interest of giving all of our audience of listeners new experiences, I'm going to pick a different part of uh, that finale and I'm going to go to the very, Old very choice. end. Where they, where the two parties are fighting with the count over what, uh, over the lawsuit that Marcellina has come in saying that Figaro cannot marry Susanna because she's already been promised to her. And uh, as this, you know, the capers, the hijinks, they are ensuing, they are topping themselves. And the whiplash between the two parties trading off in their vocal lines really evokes the conflict between these 
these two parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, and all of that is, is really enhanced by the way that Susanna's line weaves above those ostinatos and it alternates between being a solo focal point and kind of bouncing off the countess as they kind of one up each other. And you can feel the agitation. You can feel that tension ratcheting up and the flurry of activity uh, as these characters try to come up with some way to outsmart the lech. same Glyndebourne production in 1973, uh, pr- truly because I couldn't find a Susanna who I liked more than the wonderful <laughs> Romanian Eliana Kotrubash, uh, with K- Takanoa, Benjamin Luxon, and Knut Scram, John Pritchard conducting. Well, as we're coming back around to Cozy, when we're talking about, on- I mean, this is truly the the opera itself, but Act One in particular, it's truly an ensemble opera. It's like the ultimate ensemble opera. You've got the small cast; everybody's kind of equal in weight, both dramatically and musically. Every one of the ensembles in this is, as the kids say, and I said two weeks ago, a banger. Uh, but I <laughs> remain steadfast and rock solid like Fjord Aligi, and I'm going to go with my same trio that I talked about two weeks ago, the Suave. Like we know this is ridiculous, okay? But Suave is pretty much the opera's like best known passage. This scenario is ridiculous. The boyfriends are going off to air quotes war, uh, and puppet master, <laughs> DJ, or, you know, the puppet master Alfonso is hanging out with the two ladies while they're having emotional meltdowns that their boyfriends are leaving for the fake war that they think while is they're real. watching the boat sail away. While they're watching the boat go away. But see, here's the thing. That music is so beautiful. It transcends all of that. The reason this is that best known passage is because it's that moment, the one of the only real moments where the humor and the parody and the excess all fall away and they leave behind this absolutely simple musical beauty. But the thing about that simplicity is that it's actually coming from tremendous musical sophistication, the amount of control and ensemble and and listening to each other as you're performing and not over singing and being as delicate as you can be. That's really what sells this piece and makes it beautiful. You can't have anybody who's trying to be the hero here. All of these three singers have to work together with such a perfect, perfect delicacy. And one of the groups that does this very well is who I'm going to play for you right now, which is Schwarzkopf, Crystal Ludwig, and Walter Berry, uh, performing with the Philharmonia Orchestra in 1963. 
I'll just say that there is something very modern about uh, this trio uh, looking forward to composers like Strauss, where you have these long held notes and then just each, you know, each instrument changes by a tiny degree and you have a new harmony. And it's that thing that just gives you that chill up your spine, you know, just like just that simple change creates this new sound. And um, yeah, that is uh, that is very romantic. Uh, it doesn't feel, you know, like it's coming from the 18th century. It feels like it's coming from a completely different place. And um, yeah, it's very, very special. I'm really grateful for um, the 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 section that I play is is the part right before the end where where the the sisters are just holding that beautifully sustained third, and then Don Alfonso kind of needles his way up. But again, it's not lecherous. It can be dramatically. You can make it where he's he's really, you know, winking at the audience, but it still has to be sung really beautifully. And the turns that that line takes before there's that gentle cascade waterfall fall from the sisters, it just gets me every time. It, it is a gorgeous ensemble piece, and I feel like it should be the one that wins for me, but I, I think I might go a little bit of a different direction. I just... I, I maybe it's just I'm just just a sucker for La Chita Rem. There's just something I, I feel like when, when I, I did, think I didn't offer La Chita Rem. <laughs> <laughs> I offered the mask trio from from Don Giovanni. I, I'm not a big Mozart person. Maybe that's my problem here. What's doing his own thing over there? It is still part of the act. It's still part of the act. It's still part you of the act. It, it is still part of the act. Weston, it's neither here nor there. It, this is in boxing what they call a split decision because I'm going to pick something else anyway. I, I'm, I'm with Ashley on this. Suave Vento is utter simplicity and purity and musical sophistication. It cannot be beat. My vote is for it. Cozy. Okay, so if we were talking about Act 3 and uh, we could offer Sularia, that, that is a real fight. But uh, I, I yeah. sort of feel like Suave personally is is like one of the masterpieces in the entire opera canon, let alone Mozart's canon. But anyway, you guys have a split decision. We're moving on to the fourth round, uh, which are those things that make opera um, move, that, that make the time pass, like the transitions and the form. And I think that they make Don opera Giovanni... move. Are you kidding me? I still have nightmares about the transitions from Attila. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that, as I said last week, that uh, Don Giovanni is the most fast-paced in terms of what happens all in this one act and how you can follow it, and uh, just the the mood shifts. There is a span of uh, mood shifts uh, starting with. Um, uh, the really silly aria of Mazzetto, O Capito, to La Chira La Mano, which is a very sensual moment. And we really get to see Don Giovanni, you know, do his thing. And then Don Rodrigo comes in and sings a very short aria. It's not even 90 seconds long, A Fugil Traditor. And then we have uh, the re-entrance of Donna Anna and Don Ottavio. Um, and then... Donna Elvira comes back in and sings that quartet we heard last week. And now we're going to pick it up after that quartet. Let's listen to just these like 40-ish seconds of how Mozart gets us out of the what I call the gaslighting quartet to the realization <laughs> that Donna Anna has that the guy that tried to rape her or that did rape her and killed her father is actually Don Giovanni. This is some of the most dramatic music that Mozart has ever written. 
i passi suoi non voglio seguire, non voglio che faccio il precipizio. Perdonate, bellissima donna, se servirvi possimo in mia casa v'aspetto, amici, addio. That from the uh, Freiburg Brook Orchestra recording led by René Jacobs. So Oliver is spending so much time talking about how great it is that Don Giovanni is fast. But one of the things that I find really special <laughs> about Act Two of Major Figaro is that there's contrast in the pacing. Because mm. you've already had all the zaniness of the first act, which literally starts with them measuring a bed. They're in motion from the time, even before the time the curtain comes up. And then the, the fact that you get to start Act Two with stillness. And the hijinks, they pick up slowly but surely. You've got my, everyone's favorite aria, Finite in Gino Gerativi. You've got, um, <laughs> so, you have, uh, Susanna Orvia Sortita. You have a Prite Presto Prite when they're, when they're starting to have this big, um, sequence around the closet and who is hiding inside of it. But where I think this opera, th- this act really takes flight and is so magical is the transition from the Count and Countess fight about whether or not Car- about, about Carabino being in there to when it turns out that Susanna appears. The audience knows to expect this, but um, everyone on this call, I believe, is able to understand the idea of dramatic irony. And that duet really feels more like a continuation of Susanna Orvia Sortite. And you're not even really aware that you're in the beginning of the finale because you're so early in the act structure. But when Susanna comes out of the closet, the dressing room, and the music changes so suddenly and so completely, this is a transition that is grounded in character. She is both playing innocent, but also being tongue-in-cheek. And that is the magic of Mozart, that he's able to hold those two really seemingly contrasting ideas at once and communicate them with just this very playful, coy melody that Susanna sings that comes out of this really um, quite almost violent duet. We're going back to Glyndebourne, but this time it's 1994, and you heard Renee Fleming, Alison Hagley, and Andrea Schmidt with John Elliott Gardner conducting. Okay, maybe I didn't state my case uh, as well as you did because uh, I get so passionate about these things. But I don't think that uh, that Don Giovanni—it's all fast. Like I said, there are these uh, variety of length of pieces. The the Gaslighting Quartet is a moment next to uh, Afugil Traditor, which is a short moment. And La Cidella Mano is a long moment next to O Capito, which is a short sort of stupid moment, which actually also gives us, <laughs> you know, a little, little bit more of the portrait of Mazzetto and 
what he's able to muster up. And it's a little bit of, it's a little bit Figaro, but just he's not as smart as Figaro. And then it, it, it leads us to the moment of the, that gets us closer to the, the end of the first act, which is, uh, Don Otavio Son Morto, this really long accompagnato, uh, which feels very, uh, you know, late, late Mozart, almost like that long scene in, at the end of the act of, uh, Magic Flute. Then, which goes into the rage aria. And then to balance out the rage aria, we have, uh, Dalla Sua Pace, which is, Another long, serene moment. So uh, there is variety of pacing. There's a lot of variety, but I would say that it's almost it it almost borders on sprawl at times. Whereas Act Mm. Two of Marriage of Figaro is so compact that you don't even realize that the dominoes have started tipping over because you've spent the last twenty minutes setting them up so exactly that once they start actually falling, it is just like an absolute snowball into an avalanche of the finale. Like those, those 25 minutes from when they come back and fight in front of the dressing room until all it, it has turned into the whole glorious septet. Like it goes by in a flash to me. Ashley? Yeah. You know, I, uh, like I mentioned previously, we're just going to go ahead and put it on again in the permanent record. There's a lot of start and stop in cozy. There is just <laughs> things happen and then nothing happens and things happen and nothing happens. And then there's a very exciting melee that happens at the end of act one to make sure that you come back after intermission. And by the way, up until then, the women are faithful. So suck it, Don Alfonso. Uh, there are a lot of pauses <laughs> musically and emotionally. This is definitely without question, the slowest dramatically of the three that are going against each other definitely still lingers on the effects of the ensemble. Like I said, this is truly the ensemble opera in the Mozart canon. Still, there's a lot of really cute interactions and frankly, a lot of fast musical action that happens in the very beginning of the opera post overture. The different musical aspects that happen there, none of them are more than two and a half minutes long. It's just snap, snap, snap. But all of the gentlemen together, they're talking to each other. The music changes. They're talking to each other. The music changes. And so one of the one of the really charming ones for me is the teeny tiny mini recit that's literally 61 seconds uh, that comes between Trio 1 and Trio 2, uh, which I'm going to play you a little bit here of the uh, Kelm, the Cologne Concerto with Renee Jacobs. Uh, and this is going to be that little recitative right in between the first two Act 1 trios for the gentlemen. Solo saper vorrei che razza d'animali son queste vostre belle. Se come tutti noi carne ossa e pelle, se mangian come noi se vestono gomme, al fin se donne so son donne, ma son tali, son tali. E in donne pretendete di trovar fedeltà, I think that the uh, honestly, it, it's pretty close for me between uh, Don Giovanni and Figaro, and poor Cozy tried its best, um, which is she you tried. know, <laughs> I I I think for me, for Don Giovanni doesn't quite make the cut. I, I think that. What Mozart is trying to transition between is much more ambitious. I don't think he always quite lands it in the way that it needs to. Whereas, not say just it, it flows. It flows so well, and I, I I think I have to give it to uh, Marriage of Figaro. Well, it's another split decision, Weston. I'm going to pick Don Giovanni. Look, the first oh, rule of writing is K I S S. Keep it simple, stupid. What we want is we want events. All the audience wants to know is what happens next. As Oliver says, it doesn't have to be fast and furious. You can have variety and pacing, but we want events, a sequence of events, and that's exactly what 
Act One of Don Giovanni does present. That's my vote. We are at the end of round four, and each opera has uh, four votes. There are ten votes in total. This is going to be the round that will decide, and this is the intangible round, uh, the round of just that special quality or that special phrase or that special interaction that really uh, puts the opera over the top. I will start and I will say that the conclusion of Act One, uh, where we have the uh, dance band on stage playing different rhythms than the uh, orchestra pit. And in essence, there are three different dance rhythms being performed all at the same time. And you are actually able as a listener to follow the waltz and the contra dance and the minuet, each dance representing its own class. And uh, it's it sounds like chaos, uh, but you can still hear each rhythm. And all that cacophony leads up to the scream of Zerlina offstage as she is very close to being assaulted by Don Giovanni. Uh, what a way to snap us out of that. I think it's brilliant use of uh, these Baroque dance rhythms. Uh, it's a brilliant use of a, a scream off stage, uh, and it really does uh, put the f- finale into that last, you know, high gear. Here is uh, a performance of that moment from the Aix en Provence uh, production, which stars um, Philippe Sly. <laughs> closing sextet of act one for me again everything is kind of coming to a head at the end of act one it's been so slow dramatically and largely slow musically and then oh no everything's happening all at once everything (laughs) up until this point has been really slow and then all of a sudden the passages and the tempo everything picks up to something that's exciting we we have started in the musically sublime and then we close out with the absolutely ridiculous despina is wearing a disguise and holding a giant magnet for Pete's sake. It is the, (laughs) what I like to call the funniest kind of musical schizophrenia. I would also like to just use this as my final closing argument for why this act is so excellent. I I love this act in this opera. It certainly has its flaws, but ultimately I like it for the same reasons that I like act one of Into the Woods uh, or, you know, to provide a slightly more modern example. Mm. It's it's beauty and silly humor before Ish gets real or as real as it can be when you your sister's boyfriend shows up with glue and a mustache to prove that you can't be trusted. But again, neither could the men. Uh, Some of the cast think they have it all figured out. Some are incredibly naive and ultimately everybody's going to have to learn to forget give, but that's for act two. We don't have to worry about right right now. Uh, so you can stay light. You can go deep with this. So again, the the car crash that happens at the end of act one really just signifies why this is so delightful. Uh, and we're going to play a little bit right now of a 1996 recording with Schulte, Fleming, Sophie von Otter, Lepardo, Bear, Pertuzzi, and Scarabelli. This is where everything starts happening. Oh, 
I've talked a couple times about uh, how much I love Act 2 Finale of Marriage Figaro. And I'm going to turn back the clock from my last example just a couple minutes to that duet between the Count and Countess when they actually start, when when they're bickering about who's in the wardrobe and the Countess starts to confess that actually it's Carabino, but really you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> and it gets it goes zero to 60 real fast. There's a, he screams at her to give her, give him the key. And then there is a turn to minor that feels so threatening, especially in the context of what we know about the count, the character of the count. And it is a moment, uh, and she very much bristles and her spine stiffens and she says, I, non son rea, I am not guilty. And that is a moment that not only, that, that first of all offers a lot of directorial options for the countess. She could be pleading, she could be imploring, but the, my personal favorite choice is when she is standing her ground and really looking eye to eye with him and being so daring and so modern. But the abuse that this couple is, is that that this couple is hurling at each other in this moment feels so current and it still feels messy today, let alone right. in the 18th century. It really like make should make the audience squirm when it's done right. And even though we're our argument, I, I that enough is uh, is the expertise of Act Two. But everyone's favorite part of this opera that's not in Act Two, Contessa Perdona, would not hit the same without this moment. This lays the groundwork for the forgiveness because she's saying, I'm not guilty, but you are guilty and I'll forgive you anyway. That is the magic of Mozart and the Enlightenment. Well, it comes down to whether or not you want action, if you want excitement, if you want like macho, you know, uh, violence in your opera, or if you're, if you prefer like this more psychological violence that happens in Figaro. And I will say as somebody who loves all three of these operas, I am most likely to cry in Figaro multiple times. And that <laughs> non son rare moment, I'm just thinking about it now. It's it really <laughs> hits. So <laughs> well, let's let all of our listeners join audience in don't don't it, it, let's let all of our listeners join Oliver in tears while we listen to Simon <laughs> Keenly sign and Melody Melody Diener having it out from this production of Teatro Under Wien with Ricardo Munti conducting. plenty of tears right now, but I think it's time for one of the contestants, or two of the contestants to be in tears, because it's time to choose a winner, George. Well, the real winner, of course, is Lorenzo de Ponte, who wrote the libretti for each of these three <laughs> operas that we're talking about. Here's the thing. I love that everyone's choice is of an act that is leading right up to intermission. 
Don Giovanni and Così, of course, in a two-act structure and Figaro mm. in four, mm. but act two would, would lead up to the intermission. Here's the thing about when you're wrapping up things at the intermission, right? The audience is thinking one thing and one thing only, which is, I know how this is going to end and I have no idea how this is going to end. And they're thinking that at the same time. And how does the librettist and the composer bring everything together in a way that is completely predictable and utterly surprising? To me, the second act of Marriage of Figaro does exactly that. We think we know how it's going to end. The groundwork has been laid. And yet at the same time, we have no idea how emotionally, physically, Mm. dramatically, this is all going to come together. That's my choice. I I I don't want to like you know I, I feel like sometimes we get accusations that this is rigged um, <laughs> because we agree um, and sometimes it is but not this time I I completely agree with you George I think that as an act this has to be probably the most effective in all of Mozart I, I will say I have a soft spot for uh, for Don Giovanni I think it, it was it is super ambitious I think that there was uh, and I, I love the music in Kosi but I, I just like musically and dramatically everything is firing off just perfectly for where it needs to be in act two of of Figaro and that's my pick as well well, you guys are going to have to live with Benita Ingenokiatevi. Why don't we close <laughs> by enjoying that aria? Thanks a lot for nothing, you guys. I got to go. I'm going to see Flying Dutchman right now. <laughs> Bye, Oliver. Bye, Oliver. Say hi to David Alden from me. That's what we think about the best act of a Mozart opera. But of course, we want to know what you think. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get that OBS beer coaster for your pint and that OBS lapel pin for your lapel. Just for sharing your own hot take. Two minute drill. We're going to share it right now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. A new documentary about Antonio Papano titled Take Me to the Opera, A Time of Change, focuses on the conductor's passion for the art form and his mission to make it accessible to everyone. Opera shouldn't cater just to one audience or be focused on just one corner of the repertoire, says Papano, who currently leads Royal Opera House. I like football, too. Does that mean you can't like opera? Absolutely not. In trade news, San Francisco Opera has named Evan Kahn to the position of principal cellist, making him the first new appointee in almost 50 years to the position. In other San prefix news, Teatro San Carlo has appointed Carlo Fuertes as the company's new superintendent. He's taking over from Stefan Lissner. Progress report! Two years after the debut of the Bayreuth Festival's first female conductor, Natalie Stutzman, became the second and received an incredibly rare standing ovation after Bayreuth's Tannhäuser. It's good news to be second, Stutzman said. It proves the things are moving. 
two in 150 years, but I'll take it. In trade news, Heather Kitchen, the general director of Calgary Opera, leaves the company this December after five years in the position. And Opera Memphis has appointed Jonathan King as the company's new music director. On the disabled list, Oliver Camacho did not see Rolando Villazon in Santa Fe following a painful rehearsal injury to Rolando, not to Oliver. Baritone Luke Sutliff replaced uh, Rolando Villazon in the title role of the company's new version of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. Villazon said, quote, I am absolutely gutted to miss this performance, but I must follow the doctor's orders. I am doing everything I can in order to be well enough to perform from August 2nd onwards. Pretty Yende has withdrawn from her gala concert in Budapest following the death of her mother. Yende wrote on Facebook, My sweet mommy passed a few days ago. Our entire family and my town are in mourning. She touched so many lives with the magnitude and kindness of her heart and smile, which could light up everything and everyone around. Ludovic Tezier has cancelled his upcoming performances of Don Carlo at Bayerisch Staatsoper. Dear friends, it is with regret that I have to retire from Don Carlo. I haven't had a break since March 2022. My body is busy reminding me of this. Boris Pinkasovich will replace Tezier as Posa. Exit stage right. Soprano Danica Mastilovich has died at 89. Born in Yugoslavia, she studied at the Music Academy in Belgrade joining Oprah Frankfurt at the behest of no less than George Schulte. She went on to perform with the company for 40 years, becoming Kammerzängerin in 1983. And on this day, July 31st, it was a big day for Jacques Offenbach with two premieres, first <laughs> of his opera Le Soissons-Six in Paris in 18. 1856, and then La Princesse de Trebizonde in Baden-Baden in 1869. In 1982, it was the first performance of George Rocheberg's opera The Confidence Man, which was based on the novel by Herman Melville of the same name at Santa Fe Opera, where Oliver is. <laughs> Our birthday boys uh, today are eight, in 1885, the baritone Aristide Baracchi, who was born in Reggio Emilia. He created the slave admonisher in Boitos Nerone. Everyone you know, my favorite role, personally. The Mandarin in Turandot and Vinicio in another Nerone, this one by Nascani. 1919, English conductor Norman Del Mar was born in London. And then 20 years later, to that day, also in London, English conductor Stuart Bedford was born. German violinist and conductor Reinhard Goebel was born in 1952. But most importantly, in 1845, Adolf Sax, the inventor of the saxophone, sold his instrument to the French army bands. Good for him. And that's your two-minute drill. We'd like to take a moment to commemorate operatic saxophone. <laughs> Probably the most famous use of it 
of the instrument is by Jules Massenet in Verter, where Charlotte sings, Va l'essicule me larme, go, let my tears flow in her little soliloquy. And Massenet heightens the drama there by making the alto sax play at the very bottom of its range to get that mournful, unique timbre just right. Uh, you just heard Frederica von Stade at Royal Opera House with Colin Davis, Sir Colin Davis conducting. I like to think that the Verter sax walked so that Yakety sax could run. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley was pushing hard for a Yakety sax clip. Dear I listeners. will always push for Yakety sax. <laughs> I, lo- I love the saxophone. I think it works so well in an orchestra and as a solo instrument. Uh, the the history of the saxophone is actually really fascinating. There was a lot of like you know bad blood and like you know uh, uh, contracts trying to keep the uh, the orchestra uh, the the saxophone out of the orchestra, which is one which is the main reason why it's not the standard part of the uh, of the modern orchestra today. And also, uh, you if you are at all familiar with uh, meme history, Adolf Sax is known in addition to being uh, the inventor of the saxophone for being extremely accident prone. This guy nearly <laughs> died many, many, many times. And a I man like, after my own heart. And I feel like that's a great way to transition into talking about Rolando Villazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, first of all, that's what you get for naming an instrument after yourself. Is, is that's true. That's true. Pro- it is true. Villazon, man, the guy cannot catch a break. I will never forget back in 2008 when I was an assistant to the director at the Met and Viazon was singing Edgardo in Lucia di Lammermoor, and it was the night where his voice literally popped, and you could Ugh. hear it. It, it was. I get nightmares just mm. thinking exactly, about that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like it's like watching uh, somebody like get their knee broken in the NFL. Like everything just stops in yeah. that moment, and it was exactly the same, except I- opera. I, I will say this: this is uh, this was not a vocal injury this time. Thank goodness. Um, this appears to be, well, thank goodness his baby, baby, a little, little far. Uh, but like it was apparently a back injury sustained from, uh, there's apparently like some flying that happens, you know, some aerial work, uh, in the, in this production. In the the flying Dutchman, is that it? No, George, (laughs) not that one. Not that one. The fact that it's not a vocal injury is presumably what Santa Fe meant when they said that it was a minor injury, but the fact that he had to put out a correction to say like, Oh Actually, no, it hurt. It's not minor. I'm in serious pain and the doctors told me I could not perform. So thank you for keeping my name out of your mouth, Santa Fe. Yeah. Uh, apparently, apparently he, it would happen during I think dress rehearsal and he he kept going through dress rehearsal, had it checked out and they were like no no performing for at least 4 days. Oh, um which is terrible timing. I really feel bad too because uh uh, uh Rolando via via social media has been fully taken up by advertising uh this this new version of l'orfeo um with uh orchestrated by nico muli uh and it's uh and i you know <laughs> oh, i thought he was starting to ab- advertise like ibuprofen <laughs> no uh i mean he, he probably should at this point but does your um, back hurt like mine I, does i i hope he recovers very soon i hope he can finish out the run uh once he um you know re- fully recovers and doesn't put himself in danger with the Aerials again because then he should, you know. he should just get a medical marijuana license. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, think that that would help him, him get through Orfeo. <laughs> we'll get him some medical grade CBD cream, just slather it, it him in it. It would make Orfeo bearable if you were high. 
<laughs> oh. uh, edgy well, Lorfeo takes from uh, George over here. You know who's probably high on life right now is our friend Natalie hey. Schutzman with her There's standing ovation. Oh, you know, you know, you know. Act Act uh, Act One of uh, of uh, Cosi might not have won in the transitions, but Ashley Hargrave sure did just there. Um, Thank you very much. I'm here I, all I week. do think I do think that you know it, it does feel. Uh, it does feel like like oh she's just the second one it's like you're just the second one she's not the first one to do it but like i do think that it is important to get that second one out of the way right away you need to establish the uh the change the the fact that this was not just a one-off pr stunt to have a woman conduct a couple of years ago this is something that's going to happen again and keep happening it sounds happening, like hopefully. you're talking about having a child it's like just get the second <laughs> one over with and done i that is how Wagner fans talk about Bayreuth. So it really yeah. is. <laughs> kind of is a little bit. Do you think yeah. that Yannick is kicking himself that he uh, was spitting on her earlier this year? Because that is Whoops. not great. Like he, what a powerful ally he could have had, but he does not deserve her. She, she, she's now she's basically like scoreboard, scoreboard. <laughs> she's got the whole city of Atlanta behind her. She'll be oh fine. Tony Papano. Man, watches football. How about that? Stars, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna cry. Oh, as we wrap this show up. <laughs> How touching! Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. I'm trying to tie that into the, the tears at the end of Act Two that Oliver was shedding. That, uh, oh, but I it see. is time to wrap the show up. Good call, bad call is how we're gonna. Take it home as always. Oliver not here to fight his corner, so we're throwing it over to Matt Cummings. Okay, so this is not strictly opera related, but it is of the utmost cultural importance, which is, am I the last person on earth to see nine to five? Yes, Matt, you are the last one. (laughs) How did I allow this to happen? I'm obsessed with that movie. (laughs) Wait till you see the musical, you'll die. I, I mean... I was just sitting there, you know, that you got the William Tell overture while Dolly Parton is rope tying Dabney Coleman and many, many Classic. other pastiches of other classical music compositions that are just close enough to not be uh, under copyright. <laughs> but uh, like, I have absolutely no notes. That movie is perfect. The three of them are amazing. <laughs> I've long yes. been a Jane Fonda stan in theory, but now I need to redouble my efforts to see everything she's ever been in. Well put Weston Williams. So my good call is that the New York Times is finally catching up on our backlog of episodes, clearly, because they did a lovely little write-up about Trimonisha, which I discussed at length, what, like a year ago? So what are you doing, New York New York Times? Like, Come you know, on. catch up. You listen at two times speed or something. Um, but I think it's a really interesting, uh, you know, little write-up about, you know, uh, how how it's sort of you know making a little little comeback and its historical significance and like the multiple versions that are being put out there over the past year or two and coming up soon and of course you know uh, be, being as it's a it's just a great historical opera by Scott Joplin um, that has such historical resonance but also has all the complications of you know not having the original orchestration, having to figure out what period practice is, whether that period practice even works within the context of the modern opera house. It's just really fascinating to me. It's well worth checking out. Thank you, New York Times, for uh, listening to me talk about Scott Joplin, presumably. 
Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> you know, I travel a lot, but I don't often travel for me, for fun. Uh, and that changed this week. Uh, and I got to go to a wonderful part of the country that is affectionately called Delmarva, which is Del coastal Delaware, coastal Maryland, coastal Virginia. And I got to go to an incredible place, two incredible places called Astigue and Shikatig Islands. And it is where a band of wild feral ponies run mm. and go about their business. It's protected Amazing. land. Nobody lives there. Uh, but there are tours that you can take where you can ride boats to get next to the island so that you can see where these ponies are. You can camp on one corner of the island, but you're away from the ponies. You can watch them at a distance. And I just... To be able to be in this beautiful part of the country to see these these wild ponies run. I wasn't expecting to be so moved, but I was. I finally laid eyes on the ponies after seeing an eagle in an eagle's nest, and I just started weeping. Uh, so what I hope for all of you on this panel, and my listeners included, is may something bring you so much joy this week, the way that the wild ponies did for me, that you just you cry a little, but in a good way. Those wild ponies, they couldn't drag you away. <laughs> Yikes. In this house, we stand for Misty of Shinkatigue, just saying. <laughs> makes me makes me think of Act 2 of, I don't know, like, Marriage of Figaro, just crying about that. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, Uncle George is always a little late to the party. I finally listened to the original Broadway recording of the musical Urine Town, and it's really, really great. It is the best pastiche of a Bertolt Brecht Kurt Weil collaboration I think I've ever heard is so darn good. Surprisingly broad category, that is. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website operaboxscore.com and hey that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are give back to the OBS on our donate page your announcer is Norm Waddell your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho and your audio editor is Weston Williams he's going to earn his keep on this one I can tell you <laughs> for co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave with guest Rayanne Bryce Davis I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera after Act One or Two. We're back with an all new <laughs> show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more near death experiences for Adolf Sachs and Rolando Viazon. Join us. <laughs>